this is the continuing lecture for the first part of the uh, Orientalism essay. The first part is called Knowing the Oriental. The last, uh, the last recording was um, about an hour long and hopefully we'll be able to wrap up just one or two other things that are left in this particular section and then move on to the next one for which um, I'll make a new recording. So um, we were on page number 38-39 and uh, more or less uh, what uh, Saeed talks about is in continuation with the things that we've already discussed. However, I just want to read out one or two other quotations on page number 39. Said quotes Kramer further, and this is the paragraph which begins with Kramer makes no effort to conceal that Orientals were for him always and only the human material he governed in British colonies. And after that, the quotation mark is important because it's fairly representative. The quotation says, as I am only a diplomatist and an administrator whose proper study is also the man, uh, so on and so forth. And then the, con then the quotation marks... Um, continues, I content myself with noting the fact that somehow or other the Oriental generally acts, speaks and thinks in a manner exactly opposite to the European. Now there is nothing new in this vis-a-vis um, -vis what we have already been talking about but I just wanted to uh, sort of highlight I think which is what Saeed is also trying to say the frequency with which these kind of assertions um, are part of the European and colonial discourse. Now, uh, there is one small thing that uh, Said clarifies, and he says that the way in which he is understanding Orientalism, and Orientalism is usually seen as justifying colonialism, being used commonly as justification for Orientalism, because of which there might be a common misconception wherein it might seem as if uh, Orientalism was born, the discourse of Orientalism was born as a side effect of the discourse of colonialism. Now, uh, he says it very, very clearly uh, in the paragraph on page number 39, uh, where he says, We would be wrong, I think, to underestimate the reservoir of accredited knowledge, the codes of Orientalist orthodoxy, to which Cromer and Belfort refer everywhere in their writing and in their public policy. And after that, this is an important uh, sentence that you guys should definitely underline. To say simply that Orientalism was a rationalization of colonial rule is to ignore the extent to which colonial rule was justified in advance by Orientalism rather than after the fact. So Orientalism does justify the colonial rule but according to Said, Orientalism comes much before colonialism does. So Ori Orientalism is a discourse which is already available to the European. And it is used as a sort of a precondition for colonialism to be justified. So in that sense, uh, you, uh, you can't really make the assertion that Orientalism comes after colonialism as a justification. So this is an important uh, distinction that Said definitely makes here, one that I definitely wanted to highlight. Um, so he says that uh, later on, um, on the same page, he says, uh, since the middle of the 18th century, these are the last four lines of the page, since the middle of the 18th century, there had been two principal elements in the relationship between East and West. And I just wanted to talk very briefly about these two. One was a growing systematic knowledge in Europe about the Orient, knowledge reinforced by the colonial encounter, as well as by the widespread interest in the alien and the unusual exploited by the developing sciences of ethnology, comparative anatomy, uh, philology and history, 
Furthermore, to this systematic knowledge was added a sizable body of literature produced by the novelists, poets, translators, and gifted travelers. And the second element is the feature of Oriental-European relations, um, and it was that Europe was always in a position of strength. Not to say domination. There is no way of putting this euphemistically. So the two important things um, to consider when one looks at how Orientalism actually developed from the middle of the 18th century, according to Said, is one that there were all of these new disciplines which were coming up, and elsewhere in the in in this very part of the essay, Said also notes that in the it was in the 18th century that philologists actually realized and they came to know. uh that hebrew was actually a much older language than any of the european languages but the fact that all of these were cultures and egyptology was making a lot of strides and indology was making a lot of there were a lot of developments in these uh, sort of parallel uh, disciplines as well but what was happening was that this was knowledge which was being codified by this was knowledge which was being you know uh, created by and structured by the european and so then what started happening according to said was that this knowledge about the orient hebrew for example which would create knowledge about the middle eastern orient indology which would create knowledge about the indian orient egyptology would create knowledge about the egyptian orient so all of these different disciplines which were being created in the 18th century were being created by the europeans they were being codified by the europeans and then they were going they, they were being given back to the orient so the indologists so indians could read indologists and really understand uh, you know uh, who they were and how old they were so philologists then figured out how old hebrew was and so they were they were getting the knowledge of the orient and they were giving it back to the orients and they were giving it back to the orients with their own particular perspective with the perspective of how to understand that kind of ancient uh, you know that kind of ancient heritage for example belfour cromer and or you know um, and the other examples also in this essay they clearly point to the fact that even though these were the oldest civilizations and they had uh, you know the there were a lot of glorious moments in the history but at the same time uh, the real way in which you should look at the all the achievements of the civilization is that these civilizations can only prosper when there is a despot um, you know ruling the country or ruling the culture because democracy is something that they are not capable of so they figure out the history of egypt or the history of the orient they repackage it they put a new twist on it they put a new perspective to it and then they give it back to the orient so that the orient can uh, sort of relearn themselves from the perspective of the uh, from the perspective of the occident so in that sense then on page number 40 he goes on to talk about uh, what gave the orientals world its intelligibility and identity was not the result of his own efforts but rather the whole complex series of knowledgeable manipulations by which the orient was identified by the west right so the orient is not knowing himself or herself on their own but by the complex series of knowledgeable manipulations this is a knowledgeable manipulation this creating a discipline out of the orient and then being identified or being put into a particular perspective by the west right so in that sense said says um you know that's the two features of the cultural relationship that i've been discussing come together these are the two features that he is talking about knowledge of the orient because generated out of strength in a sense 
creates the Orient, the Oriental and uh, and his world. In Cromer's and Belfort's language, the Oriental is depicted as someone, something one judges, as in a court of law, something one studies and depicts, as in a curriculum, something one disciplines, as in a school or prison, something one illustrates, as in a zoological manual, and so on and so forth. And do you see here how... Saeed actually brings together the same kind of ideas that Gramsci talks about, the same kind of ideas that Foucault talks about. The idea that knowledge in itself is not, uh, it's not objective, that it is almost always political and one needs to recognize it as such and one needs to recognize the politics of language and the kind of power that is associated with the knowledge and the kind of power that can be brought out of knowledge right and the kind of knowledge that power can actually get you right you have the power to create the kind of knowledge that you want that is basically what he's talking about and he goes on further to quote the same thing on page number 41 in the paragraph it actually ends on 41 however i just want to go ahead and talk about um just one small thing here uh, on page number 41 he says uh, somewhere towards the end of the paragraph which begins on during the early years of the 20th century uh, people uh, like Belfort and Cromer could say what they did uh, in the way they did because in the earlier tradition of orientalism than the 19th century one provided them with the vocabulary, imagery, rhetoric and figures with which to say it. So Orientalism was already established by the time that people like Belfort and Cromer, you know, start to talk about the Orient. So there's already this tradition which has its own vocabulary wherein, and by vocabulary he basically means that there are words which have specific kinds of meaning. The Orient, for example, stands for somebody who's deceitful, somebody who's lazy, somebody who's irrational, somebody who's hyper-emotional, somebody who's subhuman in that sense, right? So it has its own vocabulary, its own semantics, it has its own imagery. The Orient is almost always dark. He's almost always, again, uncivilized. He's mysterious. It has its own rhetoric. How do you talk to the Orient, right? You can talk to them, uh, but you can't use the same logic or the same rational that you use uh, with the European. The rhetoric is different. The figures with which to say it, there have been enough scientific and anthropological studies which actually quote and uh, which prove that the Orient is what he is. So there is a lot of scientific work which has been done, right? So uh, towards the end of this, he again quotes Lord Salisbury uh, in 1881 and says that the common view of the Orient was intricately problematic. When you have got a faithful ally who is bent on meddling in a country in which you are deeply interested, you have through three courses open to you. So this is basically uh, the context of this particular thing is that uh, both England and uh, France were both interested in, um, you know, uh, there were clashes in their oriental uh, enterprises. And so Lord Salisbury is talking about how do you deal with that sort of a situation. So he says there are three courses which are open to you. You may renounce or monopolize or share. Renouncing would have been to place the French across our road to India. So this is about Egypt. So he's saying that if we let the French take Egypt, then uh, we would have opened up their road to coming into India. Monopolizing would have a very near would have been very near the risk of war. So we resolved to share. Now does this remind you again of what we've talked about in class about the paper partition of Africa? This is exactly the same kind of attitude. So you see it repeating again. The patterns of power and the patterns of how to understand the other 
go on repeating and once people have figured out and once people have set a precedent there's nothing which is um, you know too inhuman to be followed once a precedent has been set and that's exactly what is happening here so um, of course they shared right uh, and Said says what they shared however was not only land or profit or rule they did not just share the geographic uh, or the economic profit or the political rule but but it was a kind of intellectual power I have been calling Orientalism and this is exactly what Said is talking about his purpose is not to try to sort of figure out what are the ramifications of this kind of a stereotypification what he is trying to talk about is the fact that uh, the Orient or the Orientalism as an ideological structure if we can at all call it that even though Said does not call it that, call it that anywhere at all uh, Orientalism at all has all of these regular characteristics and he says that it makes sense that the British and French would have you know fairly similar kinds of ideas about the, what the Orient is because you know Napoleon um, Napoleon also has a lot of Oriental uh, ambitions and so did Britain but he says that what is very interesting is that there's also German Orientalism now Germany as a country did not have a lot of colonial ambitions in the Orient and yet so their kind of Orientalism is still theoretical they are only theorizing the Orient as the other and and, and yet, you know, um, there are a lot of very, very important German Orientalists whose works have had a lot of effect on the discipline, right? And a lot of what they talk about is very similar to what the British and the French Orientalists talk about. And that kind of similarity, that kind of, you know, the, that kind of stability in the stereotype of the Orient is exactly what Said says is symptomatic of this kind of, uh, you know, power hierarchy. Um, that the Orient gets reduced to a sort of an object on which the West functions and this object is always stable. And that Orient is absolutely everybody. So one stereotype fits, fits all. And also the stereotype never changes. It's as stable a category as any. Right? And that's problematic. And that's one of the things that uh, people have criticized Said for. If you remember the discussion that we had, um, you know, for the introduction to this particular um, text as well. That's that's why Ajaz M was, um, actually criticizes um, uh, Said. So... Um, that's the reason why we discussed it there. So in, in that sense, then Said goes on to say on 42, he says, no Oriental was ever allowed to see a Westerner. And he says that this is basically uh, ways in which in the 19th century, the myth of the Orient and the Occident was actually, or the power myth of the Occident was uh, maintained because, um, you know, all the British army officers and the bureaucratic officers, they were made to retire as soon as they reached the age of 55. And Said says, no Oriental was ever allowed to see a Westerner as he aged and degenerated, just as no Westerner needed ever to see himself mirrored in the eyes of the subject race as anything but a vigorous, rational, ever alert young Raj. So the Westerner always remained this, this sort of this image of health and fitness and uh, the Orient almost always the decapitated, the lying, stealing, thieving kind of uh, um, subhuman person. And uh, he then goes on to say he talks about the Oriental Renaissance. He says Oriental Renaissance happens uh, in the late 18th and early 19th century. This is just uh, for the sake of just uh, making sure that I tick off all the important points. All of this is given fairly straightforwardly in the text. 
and uh, so Said says that around this time, late 18th and early 19th century, a lot of writers uh, sort of sort of developed a new awareness of the Orient, and this time, this this during the Re- Oriental Renaissance was it what what you know what the event that he calls Oriental Renaissance, the movement. Um, the Orient actually extended from China to Mediterranean, and uh, it was in a in a lot of ways it was because of the new disciplines that were coming up, uh, and, uh, which included philology because of earlier languages were being you uh, you know being read and being understood in a scientific quote unquote scientific manner, uh, because of the translations by William Jones and like people, uh, and you know. Uh, all of these uh, philologists and literatures and trans- translators were reading new texts from Sanskrit, from Zen, from Arabic, and so on and so forth. So, in that sense, um, you know, the Near East and the Europe, um, you know, and this is around the same time when Napoleon was sort of uh, Napoleon was launching an attack on Egypt in 1798, uh, which, in a certain sense, according to Said, is representative of really um, of how uh, the history of Orientalism actually, um, you know, sort of uh, validated, perhaps for the first time, and perhaps it, you know, on that extent. Um, for the first time, um, you know, the colonial ambitions of the French and of the English. And so he says, uh, Egypt and subsequently the other Islamic lands were views, viewed as um, as a live province, the laboratory, the theater of effect, of effective Western knowledge about the Orient. And this basically means that, uh, and when he talks about this, he says that Napoleon was very sure that he is going to be able to, you know, conquer Egypt and um, hold it precisely because he read so much about Egypt. He's read, he'd read so many Orientalist texts. And uh, so that he, he was very sure that he actually knew the Orient because of, you know, because the discipline in a certain sense already existed. So um, he says that... Um, um, with such experiences in Napoleon's, the Orient as a body of knowledge in the West was modernized. And this is a second form in which 19th and 20th century Orientalism existed. From the outset of the period I shall be examining that there was very, there was everywhere amongst Orientalists the ambition to formulate their discoveries, experience and insights suitably in modern terms to put ideas about the Orient in very close touch with modern realities. And this basically meant that, uh, you know, the Orient was being reformulated according to a lot of the newer disciplines. And he goes on to talk about these newer disciplines uh, when he says Renan's linguistic investigations of the Semitic in 1848. And how does Renan's investigations, I hope you guys know what Semitic is. Please look it up if you don't. So Renan's linguistic investigations of Semitic in 1848 they were done through contemporary comparative grammar, comparative anatomy, and racial theory. So what you have here is, these were all newer disciplines and these were all supposed to be aligned with the scientific, you know, the scientifism in a certain sense of the Newtonian revolution that I was talking about earlier. So in that sense, there was, says Said, an expansion in the available means for disseminating Orientalism and Orientalist periodicals began. So there was a large number of people who were writing about the Orient, formulating knowledge about the Orient and formulating knowledge about the Orient in fairly modern ways. So in that sense, uh, 
um, you know um, there was a lot out there which was being talked about there was a lot out there uh, there were a lot of people who were engaging with orients orients and orientalism but said goes on insisting at the end of page number 43 uh, as well orientalism imposed limits upon thought about the orient so it doesn't matter how how imaginative a person was doesn't matter how great a scientific or a social scientist a person was what you could think about the orient and the ways in which you could formulate the orient they were fairly limited and this was the truth of how the orient was being understood and um there were of course there were a lot of uh, there was still a lot of freedom for the western uh, for the westerner to talk about it because the westerner always approached the orient according to said with a constant understanding and with a constant uh, you know um, feeling that he was the stronger culture and he could penetrate he could wrestle with he could give shape and meaning to the great asiatic mystery and disraeli these are disraeli's words that you can understand it you can decode it uh you can wrestle with it you can fight with it the great asiatic mystery is for the westerner to decode right um and said says again on page number 44 this is this is something that you can use as a quotation the paragraph which ends here it says my argument takes it that the orientalist reality is both anti human and it is persistent it reduces the orient from being a person to a sub sub person and it is constant it is persistence so when the oh, when the west looks at the orient they look at the orient specifically as non people and he comes back to cromer and then he says that the cromers uh, you know sort of um uh how does orientalism work right if you want to look at how the historical phenomenon works then he says that the persistence can be understood by looking at how frequently it actually occurs and in what ways it occurs uh, you know throughout history and he says that cromer wrote this particular text called the government of subject races and he uh, he wrestles with the problem of how britain which is a nation of individuals should administer a far flung empire according to a number of central principles and then he says that there should be a local agent and then this local agent should have specialist knowledge of the native and he should also have an anglo-saxon individuality and there should be a central authority at home in london and so said says that this this then what happens is that um, you know the kind of power structure that cromer establishes here is one that you know we get to see a lot in how orientalism functions so there are a lot of local agents and if you remember this is the same kind of theme the same kind of power structure that you find in almost all colonial texts uh, it's the same for heart of darkness for example right so you have local agents who know the natives who are as good as the natives so those of you who are studying the text you know dopadi has the same structure as well the same sort of uh, power structure as well uh so there is somebody who has uh, you know sort of intricate knowledge of how the um you know how the locals function how they feel their um, ideas uh, their ideologies and so on and so forth and then the west is of course the seat of power which controls everything and this interplay between local and central interests is is very very intricate said says and this is basically how um, you know a lot of orientalism and a lot of colonial uh, knowledge and power structures are being determined because the a uh, power always always radiates out of this center and the center is usually in europe it it's always in the west not not usually it's always in the west so these are very very important sort of geographical markers of how orientalism actually comes about 
and then there's a hierarchy and then Sai talks about how the hierarchy also functions so um, um, he says that um, uh, Cromer reminds us that certain men such as Orientals can be singled out as a subject for proper study. The proper study in this case of Orientals is Orientalism, properly separate from other forms of knowledge, but finally useful because finite for the material and social reality, enclosing all knowledge at any time, supporting knowledge, providing it with uses. So basically, Cromer is saying that you know the the actual use of or the actual aim of an imperial administrator is a proper study of man. So that's a very humanist and uh, large-scale generic sort of a goal. And if you study humans, the proper subject or a proper study can be made according to Cromer of the Orient because, because the kind of knowledge that you gain of the Orient, right, it, the, the study or the knowledge that you gain, it has specific uses, it has specific aims, which is to bring civilization and in an underhanded manner, which is to maintain the rule over these people. Which is why, according to Said, these kind of studies, these kind of exclamations of understanding are always double-edged. Like they're not as um, they're not as objective and fair as they actually, um, you know, um, as they are made out to be. Towards the end of 45, he says, by surviving the consequences humanly, I, I mean to ask whether there is any way of avoiding the hostility expressed by the division, say, of men into us, that is, Westerners and the Orientals. And the last two lines, when one uses categories like Oriental and Western as both the starting and the end points of analysis, research, public policy, as the categories were used by Belfort and Cromer, the result is usually to polarize the distinction. So he says, when you start out for any analysis, for any research, for any public policy, when you start out by first establishing the distinction, let's look at this public policy, this is us, this is they. Right? Let's do this research. This is us, this is they. Then basically how the study or public policy or analysis, how this is going to end up is in reinforcing and polarizing the distinction even more, making this distinction even more rigid than it already existed. Because according to Sai, this tendency is this tendency of polarization is at the heart of Orientalist theory, practice and values. And you find this everywhere in the West and in a lot of senses, right? Uh, in a lot of senses, the West derives its power from this dis distinction of us versus them, one thing. The second thing, the fact that us is always going to have more power than they. And the third thing, that us having more power than they or the West having more power than the Orient is based on scientific truth and how it is based on scientific truth is something that I've already talked about in the last lecture so I'm going to stop here. Uh, I'm going to record the other lecture very very soon that is going to be about the second part of the essay. Uh, this is a lecture um, discussion for the first part of the actual essay The Scope of Orientalism for Literary Theory Postcolonialism section. Uh, Orientalism is written by Edward Said. I have already posted an introductory lecture to the essay and to the work, to the philosophy of what Said is trying to do. And we are going to begin with a little bit of a discussion 
of a more generic discussion just to connect it with the introductory lecture and then I am going to um, go into the actual text of the first part of the essay. The essay is a slightly large one but I think once you've listened to the introductory lecture once you've sort of realized what Saeed is trying to say the lecture is fairly easily read and fairly easily understood also it's uh, it's easily readable so what Saeed is trying to do just to recapitulate what we have already talked about I did discuss already uh, the goals that Saeed uh, you know sort of lays out for what he's trying to do in Orientalism and how he describes Orientalism it is in three ways the way of thinking as a discourse as a sort of a meta theory and um, as a sort of a larger context and orientalism as as as, uh, as a structure is also um, it, it happens every time that the west actually thinks about the east a westerner whenever he thinks about the east he thinks about the east in a certain kind of a stereotypical manner and and the and, and the limits of or the or the limitations of that kind of thought process which decide and define almost at an instinctual level how the West is going to think about or engage with the East any kind of an association whether it's a direct association or an indirect association right thinking about somebody is not actually a direct association or an interaction with somebody but uh, but but a sort of an indirect, a sort of an instinctual um, association with somebody. So uh, in that sense, uh, even at that kind of an instinctual level, according to Saeed, there already exists a sort of a pre uh, prejudged um, sort of structure within which uh, the Orient can actually be accessed, and that is fairly similar and. The breadth of work that Saeed talks about and that he picks up uh, throughout this text and throughout the next two books within this trilogy, they all suggest that there is fundamentally, um, uh, you know, um, there is a coarse uh, sort of fiber running through the descriptions of how the West engages with the East. And for it to have that kind of a commonality, for it to have that kind of a progression, one way of looking about it is, or one way of talking about it, the way that the West has been talking about why, um, you know, the de depiction of the East is so consistent. Every time that anybody from the West talks about the East, or in some instances, regrettably, even when the East talks about itself, the repetition of these kind of stereotypes, the repetition of the same kind of ideologies and repetition of the same kind of characteristics of the Orient. Uh, the East suggests that this continuation is, validation, is, is, is a validation that, uh, this, uh, that the stereotype that the West upholds of the East is actually true. And it is natural and we've talked about how natural is one way of um, talking about it's sort of a euphemism for naturalized rather than really what is uh, physiological and what is actually natural. So while the East will say that it's natural and hence you see the same kind of representation everywhere, uh, Saeed is going to make another uh, and you know and when he makes it a very radical kind of a shift from that kind of position and he says very very uh, clearly he says in the introduction to the book he says my analysis of the orientalist text therefore places emphasis on the evidence 
which is by no means invisible for such representations as representations not as natural depictions of the orient so he is saying that these representations of the orient are just that exactly that they are just representations there is nothing natural about these right even though they are presented as being natural and hence consistent but that's not it and that's exactly what he's trying to do here right he's saying this evidence is found just as prominently in the so called truthful texts histories philological analyses political treatises as in the avowedly artistic openly imaginative text so he's saying that you find these kind of evidences in all manners of texts and he here he's attacking the western you know the formulation of western ideologies um sorry the formulation of western disciplines also he's saying that the western disciplines history for example uh, philology for example political sciences for example the western understanding of these disciplines is also not completely truthful because and sai talks about it at length in the introduction he says that a lot of people say that if you have to be truthful then truth cannot be political because once you take a political uh, stance you know once you have a political inclination then you are favoring one kind of um, you know one kind of um, an ideology or one kind of perspective over another kind of perspective which means that you are biased and if you are biased you can't be truthful and that kind of a tussle creating that kind of polarity between being political and being truthful that is one way in which according to said a lot of disciplines get away with not talking about real issues and uh, limiting the scope of a lot of disciplines to the transcendental to the metaphoric to the abstract kind of spaces so what happens is that literature remains within the space and within the scope of imagination of transcendent beauty and so on and so forth but until and unless and this said says very very clearly for those of you who don't know he was a teacher of literature i think comparative literature but he was a teacher of literature at columbia university for the longest of times so this is his field this is his forte and he 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 talks about it fairly clearly he says that until and unless all disciplines engage with the truth of how all events of all disciplines being actually political history is not a political it favors one kind of perspective over another but uh, passing off that perspective as the objective truth that is basically where uh, the invisible power structures become visible who gets more power whose story gets told right what kind of literature is canonized what kind of literature is marginalized that is another way in which power can be assessed and accessed also so in that sense said is fairly critical of even the way in which this kind of polarity between truth and politics is created so that disciplines like philology social sciences especially economics politics literature philosophy all of these are severed and they are broken away from um, you know from any kind of structures in which politics can actually be uh, you know sort of associated with it and the true reality of how politics um, affects these kind of disciplines can actually be studied right so he is saying that that's just that's just not going to happen it's the exact of what he is going to talk about and so he also says that in the university 
you know when area studies get established those kind of programs um so then the orient also becomes a part of national policy public affairs of politics right uh, and in that sense the orient becomes uh, a part of the you know the economic importance of the orient the strategic importance of the orient it becomes translated into a discipline and so within a discipline you can deconstruct it or you can reconstruct it as and you know as you wish uh, because the discipline is defined by the people who create that discipline so in that sense uh, what he is talking about is he's he's saying that um, it hardly needs saying that because of the middle east uh, because that because the middle east is now so identified with great power politics and if you guys remember uh, even though we tend to talk about orientalism only and only within our own context within our own historical context and it's perfectly possible to do so uh, said's context is specifically the arab world uh, of which he is a part he is a palestinian right so he says that uh, because the M- middle east is identified with great power politics oil economics and this simple minded dichotomy of freedom loving democratic israel and evil totalitarian and terrorist arabs the chances of anything like a clear view of what one talks about in talking about the near east is depressingly small so because all of us have all of these kind of prejudices right we tend to believe the western um, sort of discourse and the western perspective about the east much more easily and there is an islamophobia is one part of how this kind of discourse functions and it is still fairly strong by saying that one muslim is as problematic or as dangerous as all other muslims and indian muslims are as dangerous as pakistani muslims who are as dangerous as afghan muslims who are as dangerous as arab muslims all of this kind of you know it starts from one small step and then it just keeps on progressing so there's no end to this kind of a prejudicial sort of chain which keeps on forming and when one looks at that um one sort of realizes that what said was talking about as early as 1978 and that's a long time ago now about 42 years ago it still holds very very true we still can't have an objective discussion about either the middle east because most people a don't know anything about it most people don't know what's happening in the arab countries what arab spring is what is the dissension or the discussion or what is the problem um between um israel and palestine for example for that matter students of literature and students of any other kind of discipline are uh, you know this this kind of warding off knowledge by saying that you study one thing so you should not have access to other things so most people don't even know the politics that exists behind india and pakistan and leave anything else or the foreign relations that india actually enjoys or doesn't enjoy with other countries and all of these are all of these are disciplines which have a direct impact on the way in which political economic policies are decided in the country and they have a direct impact on how we live our lives and yet things which directly involve us things which directly include us are things which are sort of cordoned off there pushed out of the limits of what we are supposed to study because literature has to be objective it has to be uh, truthful and literature and politics don't actually mix because when you mix politics with literature in a certain sense it's seen as polluting literature but said is of course saying the exact opposite of that so anyway um and in, he says this actually here he says too often literature and culture are presumed to be politically or even historically innocent it has regularly seemed otherwise to me he says and certainly 
my study of orientalism has convinced me and i hope it will convince my literary colleagues that society and literary culture can only be understood and studied together in addition and by an almost inescapable logic i found myself writing the history of a strange secret sharer of western antisemitism but that's beyond the scope of what we're talking about and so i'll go on and i will talk about the actual chapter the scope of orientalism and the first part of the chapter is called knowing the orient uh, interestingly enough said uh, starts on a very very light note he's talking about a particular speech that a particular gentleman called Arthur James Belfour had given in the House of Commons on June 13th 1910 and in a slightly sort of ironic and comical way what Said does is that he uses i mean or he he uses the traces of a sort of a western epistemology in creating a certain kind of a stature and legitimacy of the person that he actually starts with for an average uh, reader we don't know who belfour is so in a very uh, you know um, <laughs> in a slightly funny uh, sort of um, trick what said does is that he uses the tricks of the same epistemology that he is criticizing by saying that um Belfour served a monarch who in 1876 had been declared empress of india he had been especially well placed in positions of uncommon influence to follow the afghan and zulu wars the british occupation of egypt in 1882 the death of general gordon in sudan the fashoda incident the battle of omdurban um the boer war the russo japanese war and so on and so forth right and he has written about a lot of things and so basically he's he's creating a validation of the person for the person and he's saying that look here the person that i have chosen to begin with he is perfectly he's speaking from a position of authority and he's speaking from a position of authority because he has done all of these things right and that's in a lot of ways that's how the west has been legitimizing um you know legitimizing what they've been saying about the orient by saying look here what we're saying is we're rational because this person has said it and this person is the best person to talk about the orient because he's done 1 2 3 4 5 6 things and because he's done all of these things in the orient he's a philologist or he's an um, you know he's an anthropologist or he's a linguist or he's a whatever and he has authority over the orient right so he knows what he's talking about so in that sense he's using fairly similar kind of epistemology but that's very small point so what um, what belfour is basically talking about is he is saying why english england should actually remain in egypt now you have to for those of us who don't know and most of us would not know um england occupied egypt in 1882 that's the british occupation of 1882 that's the first thing that he talks about and england actually left egypt in 1956 when the democratic republic when when democracy was sort of established in um, uh, sort of democracy was established in egypt and um, you know it was problematic but egypt was one of the high points much like india egypt was one of the high points of the british uh, sort of uh, of the british uh, colonial enterprise in certain senses because egypt uh, egyptian uh, civilization much like the indus indus valley civilization is one of the oldest civilizations and by conquering egypt in that sense according to how said portrays it uh, in a certain sense britain sort of establishes it becomes like the definitive uh, sort of uh, validation for the british empire because then uh, you know after this 
Britain sort of controls, I think, 80% or Europe actually controls 80% of the rest of the world, right? And Britain is the one with the largest landmass sort of colonies, landmass of colonies, and it has two of the most important and two of the richest colonies in that sense through India and through Egypt, right? And they also have other uh, interests in other places of the world, but Egypt is sort of the crown of uh, the British imperial presence. But of course, there are a lot of nationalist insurrections in Egypt. It's 1882, so this is also the time when the Indian freedom struggle is also gaining a lot of momentum in a couple of years, in, in sort of another two decades. Uh, Gandhi sort of comes onto the scene and he is doing a lot of things. 1910 is when Belfour is talking about it, and sort of, you know, Gandhi is already on the scene. And so there's a lot of resistance in India, there's a lot of resistance in other colonies and similarly there's a lot of resistance in Egypt as well. There are a lot of, um, you know, um, there are a lot of rebellions springing up everywhere and it's becoming very, very costly for Britain to actually stay in, in, in Egypt. So there is this whole debate about whether it actually makes sense to spend so much money to, you know, to, uh, to lose the lives of so many British soldiers just to maintain the colony of Egypt. Is it really worth it? And that's the kind of discussion that Belfort is responding to. And he's responding to people like J.M. Robertson who basically says, what right have you to take up these airs of superiority with regard to people whom you choose to call Oriental? Right? And that's a direct quotation mark. And um, Sai does not miss this, miss this chance. Okay? He says that uh, the term Oriental is canonical. It's been used by Chaucer, by Mandeville, Shakespeare, Dryden, Pope, Byron, so on and so forth. And geographically, morally and culturally, it designates the East. And... Um, in that sense, the Orient, when uh, when Robertson actually talks about the Orient as an Orient, he he is using a term that is easily understandable. It's already an established stereotype in England, and so um, um, you know, Belfour uh, he says um, very very interestingly. If you just read the sections which are given from Belfour's speech, he says very interestingly. He says, um, "Who has even the most superficial knowledge of history?" If they, look, if they will look in the face of facts with which a British statesman has to deal when he is put in a position of supremacy over great races like the inhabitants of Egypt and countries in the East. He says, we know the civilization of Egypt better than we know the civilization of any other country. And how do they know the civilization of Egypt? Because of Egyptology as a discipline, because they have colleges, because they have people who are dedicated their lives to studying the Egyptian and because of that he says because we know Egypt he can make a claim that even Egyptians don't know themselves as well as we know them we know it further back we know it more intimately we know more about it it goes far beyond the petty span of the history of our race which is lost in the prehistoric period at a time when the Egyptian civilization had already passed its prime so Belfort actually acknowledges that the Egyptian race, the Egyptian civilization was at its peak when we were nowhere even where, where our history had not even begun, they had already peaked. So in that sense, uh, there is no, there, there's no way in which we can talk about inferiority or, in, or, or superiority, but he does acknowledge that the Egyptians have been in the past a great civilization. So then how does he actually say that we have the right to uh, we have the right to command these people who have had more success who have, who, who have a you know longer history, a more illustrated history than us? 
he says first of all look at the facts of the case this is the other quotation mark on page number 32 bottom of it and i'm reading uh, i'm reading from the book that i had passed around to the class in which the whole chapter is given rather than just the last uh, section which is the scope of orientalism um uh, which is given in the uh, which is given in that book which has all right so first of all let's look at the fact of the case western nations as soon as they emerge into history show the beginnings of those capacities for self government now this is the thing that he talks about this is where he clinches it he says that even if we came later we were always better civilizationally we could do self government and on page number 33 he says all their great centuries all the great centuries of the egyptians they have been very great right there have been many many very many great centuries that the egyptians have lived through they've made the pyramids and what not right have been passed under despotism under absolute government all their great contributions to civilization and they have been great have been made under that form of government i suppose a true eastern sage would say that the working government which we have taken upon ourselves in egypt and elsewhere is not a work worthy of a philosopher that it is the dirty work the inferior work of carrying on necessary labor right so this is the this this the crux of the argument that belfort actually gives he says that even though they have been great at some point in time in history but their greatness is basically the greatness of a despot of a dictatorship and the defining feature of modern europe is newtonian scientific revolution which he talks about with which he actually ends this particular section um said actually ends this particular section of the uh, of the chapter and he begins with this idea of um you know social democracy not exactly social in in the marxist sense of the term but european democracy so he says that because they don't have they don't have the kind of individual intelligence which is required for living in a democracy which every westerner instinctively has right so then um and this is on page number 32 he says the two great themes dominate his remarks here belfort's remarks and in what will follow the two themes are knowledge and power the baconian themes i think we've talked about francis bacon uh, but if you've not uh, please look it up a little bit just uh, i mean just to make the context clear here francis bacon was one of the great philosophers uh, <clears throat> um european one of the great european philosophers and he was the first person who said that the greatness of europe or the greatness of european civilization actually comes from the fact that uh, you know that that our civilization is based on science and it is only through the knowledge of science that we can uh, that we can attain power over everything else because science has the power of inducing rationality of inducing empiricism of inducing objective truth because it's only through science that you can ascertain objective truth and we're going to talk about that in a little while um in fact actually we could talk about it right now also the scope of orientalism actually ends on page number 49 and what i'm talking about is on page number 47 where said is sort of deconstructing henry kissinger's um um political essay this is on 46 the para which begins with a contemporary illustration of 
or two should clarify the observation which is and the observation that he is talking about is, is that the tendency um, you know uh, which uh, which formulates or which regulates how orientalist theory practice and uh, you know and its values are determined is sort of it's validated by a sense that western power over the orient is taken for granted as having the status of scientific truth so the west has decided and it has established that the west is more superior that the orient is inferior to it and it's not just a cultural hypothetical assertion it is the assertion of science and they've proven it scientifically and henry kissinger in a political essay which is titled domestic structure and foreign policy this is on page number 46 again he 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 uses what said says a sort of a binary method and the binary method is when you divide everything into two and you say one versus one this versus this and kissinger uses that for absolutely everything and what kissinger is talking about it he is saying that there is an you know and and this is written in 1970 if i'm not wrong i'll just have to see where the date of this essay is i think it's in 1970 but i'll have to check that you guys can check that as well but anyway so this is the time when um, according to said the west or the us now the you you know towards the uh, towards the end of the 20th century after the second world war the west becomes centered in the us uh, before the world war the west is centered in uh, england and in france and said says that, that kind of shift in what the west means also happens in the 20th century however the orient sort of remains this sort of static object which almost never changes and the power hierarchy between the east and the west it doesn't change even though what the west is also changes so then kissinger is talking about you know um the polarity between united states and the world very similar to what belfort is talking about at the beginning of the essay he is saying that there is the east which includes the arabs the egyptians and everybody else and then there's the west and that's the same polarity that kissinger is also talking about so he says uh, he um, he says that uh, said says that kissinger talks consciously uh, you know um, as an authoritative voice because he is representing the us and the us in the 1970s right uh, is the major western superpower and he he talks with the authority of representing the united states so kissinger according to said he writes in this essay domestic structure and foreign policy he writes that it's easier to deal with you know um, it's easy to deal with the industrial developed west than it is with the developing uh, than it is with the developing world and the developing world the third world is another sort of tag which gets as- associated with the orient after the second world war right but those are th- those terms are fairly coterminous in that sense and kissinger then says that um, in that sense you can divide the world into or you can divide this dichotomy of the east and the west or the developed and the um, you know developing countries you can divide them into two portions whereas the the developing countries are prophetic and here by prophetic he means non scientific they uh, rely on mystical powers whereas the west is political and by political here he means rational scientific and everything else that goes along with it um, the west is already modern it's in the 20th century the developing world is still non modern it's still antiquated it is still uh, you know sort of not reached the 20th century metaphorically right so he says that uh, the developed countries 
um, he and this is a quotation mark the last two lines on page number 46 he says the west is deeply committed to the notion that the real world is external to the observer right uh, that knowledge consists of recording and classifying data and more accurately the more accurately the better here when he says the real world is external to the observer he says that all of this idea that the world actually exists in your mind and it is internal and there's some uh, metaphysical superstitious supranatural existence or explanation of the world all of that is for the developing world for the western world for the developed world the world is external as in its material reality and only that which you can scientifically prove is real and what you can scientifically and because you can't scientifically prove anything that a person thinks not psychology not mind not spirituality all of those are not external but internal to the person and so they do not formulate the reality of the world right so kissinger's proof you know in saying that uh, the western world is made up of data it's made up of external empirical rational objectified and uh, you know sort of validated reality he says it's the newtonian revolution now the newtonian revolution is very important in the history of science the newtonian revolution is so newton i hope all of you know who newton was newton lived from 1940 1642 to 1727 and in in the history of science newton forms a very important sort of a um you know um important juncture in a certain sense before newton chemistry was you know uh, sort of understood as being alchemy and alchemy for those of you who don't know but i hope that most of you do know alchemy was a science of studying metals with the purpose of creating gold out of base metals now there was uh, in a sense you know um a psychological uh, mythical or an ethical sort of an aspect to alchemy so there are only some people who could um, practice alchemy it required a certain kind of a spiritual and ethical and moral kind of a framework and it was not accessible to everybody there was in that sense uh, you know uh, an aspect of prophecy also which was associated with it and it is said that newton also practiced alchemy for some time in his life and he realized that you know until unless science cannot have this aspect of prophecy to it so he so he redefined science in that sense and he said that until unless you can prove something empirically if you can observe the world if you can take down data and if you can create experiments which anybody can perform any observer can perform and hold true and good given that the circumstances of the experiment remain the same that if you have the same material the same conditional uh, or weather circumstances and if you conduct the experiment it will be true always that kind of universal empiricism is what newton sort of uh, brought into the study of science so the newtonian revolution is that shift in science uh, which is seen as a shift from alchemy to chemistry which is seen as a shift of, of from um, astrology into astronomy and so on and so forth right so in that sense um kissinger very very clearly says that the newtonian revolution which is actually not taken place according to kissinger in the developing worlds they still imbue their science with mysticism and with prophecies uh and this is a quotation this is on page number 47 the first two three lines cultures which escaped the early impact of newtonian thinking 
have retained the essentially pre-Newtonian view that the real world is almost completely internal to the observer. Consequently, he adds, empirical reality has a much different significance for many of the new countries than for the West because in a certain sense, they, which is the new countries, never went through the process of discovering it. And this is in the 1970s and Henry Kissinger is writing that because the West, Newton, Newton was of course, he was, a, he was a Westerner, right? So because Newton was a Westerner, he brought about this revolution which created this era of modern science and it, it is after this kind of change which came about in the scientific thinking of the West that this, this is, uh, you know, the Newtonian revolution is seen as the breaking point or the differentiating point between um, medieval Europe, which was, uh, which was superstitious and which had this element of prophecy uh, as opposed to the modern Europe, which relied only on industry, on science, on, um, you know, on empirical truth. So Kissinger very conveniently he says that because we've had a Newtonian revolution, we've been brought out into this era of science, of empirical truth. So we are greater, we are better. But that kind of a Newtonian revolution has not come about for the for the uh, Easterners, and the developing countries have not had their uh, Newtonian revolution. So they are still living in what is the earlier phase of modern Europe is the medieval times in the times when science is still not accessible for them so in that sense right uh, Saeed uh, what he was saying that you know the difference between the Orient and the Western is established as a scientific truth right uh, Kissinger associates the inaccurate developing countries and Europe with the Congress of Vienna and it's it's and it's um, this is a kind of dis distinction that Kissinger so easily gets away with, precisely because um, you know a sort of a prejudicial framework for this kind of a distinction or bifurcation of the people into these two uh, groups. It already actually exists, and Said keeps on reiterating. He keeps on saying that there is no way, there is no humane way in which this kind of a distinction and this kind of a bifurcation which divides people instinctively into two halves, one which is better, the other one which is worse, one which is more power, the other one which is less power. There is no way in which this is a humane kind of distinction and until unless we, we acknowledge it as such, right um, there is no way in which we can actually get away from it so in that sense um, you know what Kissinger also does which Saeed also keeps on um, insisting throughout the essay and throughout his oeuvre is also the fact that he says that what this what the establishment of this difference of the east with the pre-science prophetic super, supernatural and superstitious age and the West with the scientific rational age. What this kind of distinction also does is that it also creates a rationale for the for the West to constantly keep on uh, subjugating the East, constantly proving that because we are better and they are not and they can't do it on their own. So it's all right for us to uh, exercise this kind of hegemony on the West. And that's what he says, that's where he says this problem actually occurs from. And very much like the kind of, uh, you know, rationale given by Belfour in 1910, 
in 1972 this is on page number 1 uh, sorry this is on page number 48 he cites an article called uh, you know um, in in a journal called the american journal of psychiatry by the way this is a journal of psychiatry apparently in 1972 uh, there was an essay which is published by harold w glidden who says that um, you know in his four page essay he covers all of the orient 100 million of them all of their history 1300 years of it and he needs only four sources to make conclusive effort to, to make conclusive remarks and conclusive sort of um, you know decisions about what the orient psychology is on the basis of only four sources and one of them is a news report from an article from an egyptian newspaper called al ahram and uh, there's one periodical there's one book on tripoli and a book by somebody called majid khaduri who's an orientalist himself and in just four pages he can tell you everything that you know about the inner workings of arab behavior and he makes the same kind of binary distinction that kissinger makes which is that we are normal but they as in the arabs are aberrant as in they are they they, they are uh, problematic and that problematic psychology is the normal for them right he says that the arab culture has two parts one is the prestige system it and it has a shame culture and it attracts followers and clients uh, and uh, it says that arab society is always based on a system of client patron relationships it doesn't even accord a human relationship or a human sentimentality to the arab world at all he says that all arab societies are only based on this kind of a cold client patron relationship and arabs can only function in conflict situations can you imagine um, saying that somebody can only function in conflict situations and in 1972 the arab world is fraught with rifts the arab world is fraught with political um, you know problems with wars all of that everything that is happening in the arab world today was also happening at the time and there is a sort of great dichotomy in the arab world where because of the oil money they have so much power they have so much money and yet what most of the people sort of recognize them for and associate with them is violence is is and this kind of violent hegemony and instability right there's no prosperity which comes with that kind of material um, benefits which an oil economy can most most uh, you know most possibly have so then uh, he he shows to he goes on to show through the uh, akram um, uh, article that in 1969 out of the 1070 cases of murder 20% of the murders were based on desire to wipe out shame, 30% on a desire to satisfy real or imaginary wrongs, and 31% on a desire for blood revenge. And from this, he make and from this he actually um, concludes definitively that the Arabs make a virtue out of revenge. That is, they make a virtue out of violence. And this is implicitly he is validating the violence that is taking place in the arab world and he is saying that of course these are uncivilized people they can't function any other way so of course there's violence where they're living 
and he's saying that uh, the uh, for the arab the situation is not log- is not governed by the kind of logic where the logical thing to do would be to make peace objectivity is not a value in the arab world and you see again the insistence on objectivity on rationality on science all of which are ideas which are associated with the west and he continues and he says that um, you know absolute solidarity within the group is something that the arabs actually ask for which is also hegemonic because they say that there's no space because it seems as if there's no space for individuality here at the same time he says that the arabs also encourage a kind of rivalry which is destructive of this very solidarity and what does this prove to you about the arabs the fact that they don't have the culture the whole culture the whole religious regional ethnic culture does not have a positive core which can actually bind the whole people there is a conflict at the center of how the whole culture functions which is as demeaning as it can possibly get it is as racial as saying that the blacks are uh, blacks are naturally hypersexualized hyperanimalistic and they can't help but be that way so that's that sense it seems as if the very pathology of the whole culture is infected and there's no way in which the arabs can function in any other way and he also uses the term free floating hostility the art of subterfuge is highly developed in our arab life as well as in islam itself the arab need for vengeance or vengeance overrides everything otherwise the arab would feel ego destroying shame so he's saying that the Ara- if the arabs don't take vengeance for all real or imaginary imaginary wrongs then they would feel ego destroying shame so the arabs are uh, motivated towards or driven towards this kind of violence inherently which is exactly what belfour also sort of starts by talking about i'm again back on page number 33 where balfour says it's a good thing for the great nations i admit their greatness that this absolute government should be exercised by us right so he's saying that we are governing them completely we're not giving them any autonomy because there were by 1910 much like in india there was there were discussions that there should be at least some representations by the egyptians in the government but belfour is saying that is it is it a good thing that we are uh, governing them completely and of course the answer is of course it's a good thing i think that experience shows that they have got it far better got under it that is got under the british far better government than in the whole history of the world they ever had before and which is not only a benefit to them but is undoubtedly a benefit to the whole of the civilized west and again what becomes the center of the argument it says that if we govern them better it's not just good for them but it's also good for the whole civilized west right again that implicit inherent contradiction which is established again and again we are in egypt not merely for the sake of the egyptians though we are there for their sake we are there also for the sake of europe at large right so they are not just doing the egyptians a favor they are also doing the rest of the world civilized world anyway a favor by being there and even though belfour says that you know it seems like such a good thing that he is thinking about everybody but himself and that the british are thinking about everybody 
except for themselves but the fact of the matter is that uh, the reality of the history of egypt under the british rule speaks clearly that any and every one all the um, all the egyptian rebels who asked for representation in government who had nationalist kind of ideas who had nationalist ideas all the movements were actually very brutally suppressed and belfour uses the discourse of rebellion and of negative uh, you know violence in this respect uh because he says that any egyptian who would speak out is more likely to be the agitator who wishes to raise difficulties than the good native who overlooks the difficulties of foreign domination so he is saying that it's only the people who like violence because arabs and the east is inherently violent we just discussed that in the other article right they are the only ones who would agitate because the because the good native the good native resident of egypt they know that even if the british rule is a little difficult it is for the greater good and it is only for the greater good that you should uh, sort of you know you should uh, you should work at anything at all so then he says if it is our business to govern with or without gratitude even if the egyptians don't give us any gratitude we will still govern without without the real and genuine memory of all the loss of which we have relieved the population and no vivid imagination of all the benefits which we have given to them if that is our duty how is it to be performed right so he belfour says that um if we have to govern we will do it whether or not anybody gives us gratitude whether or not people um, you know have any real or genuine memory of all the loss of which we have relieved the population all the things that the egyptians have been saved of by the britishers of all the benefits that we have given to them but we will keep on doing it because it is our duty to do it in the best interest of the egyptian and the best interest of europe so um and then this is basically where um, he really hits the nails on its um on the head right he says that um you know um he says directly the native populations and this is on page number 34 he says directly the native populations have that instinctive feeling that those with whom they have got to deal have not behind them the might the authority the sympathy the full and ungrudging support of the country which sent them here those populations lose all that sense of order which is the very basis of their civilization just as our officers lose all that sense of power and authority which is the very basis of everything they can do for the benefit of those among whom they have been sent he is saying that when our officers go to egypt if a country doesn't support them then the then the then the native think that the soldiers don't have the authority of britain behind them which basically means that they don't respect the authority of the individual as much as they would have if the whole if they knew that england put all of its power behind each and every one of their soldiers now what this means is and this is the part that you guys should definitely underline on page number 34 he says belfour's logic is here interesting not least for being completely consistent with the premises of his entire speech england knows egypt egypt is what england knows 
England knows that Egypt cannot have self-government and England confirms that by occupying Egypt. For the Egyptians, Egypt is what England has occupied and now governs. And this is the most important part, right? Foreign occupation therefore becomes the very basis of contemporary Egyptian civilization. Egypt, even for the Egyptians, is the country that the English rule and have colonized. So even for the Egyptian to access their own nationality, to access the idea of their own country, right? The only idea that is available to them is that which is given to them by the Egyptians and Belfort establishes it that the Egyptians don't know their history because they don't have Egyptologists like the British do. Through the discipline of Egyptology, the British know the Egyptian history and civilization, their political needs, their economic needs much, much better than what the Egyptians know, right? Uh, and uh, Belfour uh, can speak, of course, for the civilized world, but he can't. And this is on the, uh, this is the last six, seven lines of page number 34, he says, uh, but he cannot speak directly for the Orients, for the Orientals, because they, after all, speak another language. Yet he knows how they feel, since he knows their history, their reliance upon such people as he, that is as Belfort, and their expectations. So Belfort knows, uh, you know, uh, Egyptians much better than they know themselves. Then again on page number 35 at the top, they are a subject race dominated by a race that knows them and what is good for them better than they could possibly know themselves. Right? Their great moments were in the past. They were useful in the modern world only because the powerful and up-to-date empires have effectively brought them out of the wretchedness of their decline and turned them into rehabilitated residents of productive colonies. Productive colonies. <coughs> so the only reason, the only good that Egyptians can do in the world now is as a colonial um, resource in the hands of the English who know them better than themselves and so on and so forth, right? So in that sense, um, colonizing Egypt becomes sort of the triumph of English knowledge as well as power, right? Uh, in 1907, uh, England's representative in Egypt, and this is again on page number 35, Egypt's master was called Evelyn Bering uh, or also known as Overbearing Lord Cromer and then he talks about everything that Lord Cromer talks about from Belfour now we move over to what Cromer talks about and just before Cromer's um, you know quote begins there's a very important line just three words Cromer made Egypt and the word made is underlined and highlighted by um, Said, and that is in a in a sense that in a gist is what Said is trying to show through all of these various examples, the making of a whole civilization, the making of a whole country by the um, by the Europeans and by the West, right, and so on and so forth. Um, then Cromer uh, and Belfort, both of them, they establish that Egypt has done more; it has prospered more. And um, 
Cromer has taken Egypt out of the lowest pitch of social and economic degradation before we went there they were socially degraded they were economically degraded and now it stands amongst the oriental nations alone in its prosperity and that prosperity is both financial and moral and who's brought that financial and moral prosperity the european and then said in his usual undercutting ironic style he says um how do you measure egypt's moral prosperity one doesn't know but of course the fact is that british exports to egypt equal those to the whole of africa right the the same amount of things that england or sort of british exported to all of africa exactly that much stuff britain exported just to egypt like one country and that can that can look like financial prosperity but of course you know one has to look at um, what that kind of import comes at the cost of because it's a very similar thing that was happening in india the indigenous trades were dying because the industrial things made in britain were being brought forced uh, you know into india with as less import taxes as possible and then indians were forced to buy these things so one can only imagine that you know that a similar thing was happening in egypt as well so then uh, then he uh, on page number 36 then he goes on to talk about how uh, you know there are westerners and then there are orientals the former dominate the latter must be dominated which usually means having their land occupied this is the first paragraph on the page which usually means having their land occupied their internal affairs rigidly controlled their blood and treasure put at the disposal of one or the other of the western power and what they basically do is and uh, how this is done is that people like belfort and cromer they reduce cultural and racial essences to inhuman or dehumanized kind of stereotypes and uh, and and sort of lay bare their viciousness the viciousness of the native cultures which needs to be corrected by any and all means possible right and belfour's orientals cromer subjects races this is the paragraph it starts with unlike belfour whose thesis of orientals right this is the fourth or the fifth line in that paragraph belfour's orientals are cromer subject races which he made the topic of a long essay and so on and so forth and he says cromer says outrightly he says that we need to know the orientals knowledge of the subject races or orientals is what makes their management easy and hence knowledge gives power power requires more knowledge and so on and so forth in an increasingly profitable dialectic of information and control and in this sense right uh, uh what said is talking about and the route that he's taken the epistemology that he's taken is very similar to what foucault talks about the only difference between uh, said and foucault at least the one that he overtly states is the fact that foucault says that the discourse is more important than you know the sort of uninvestigated sort of mass of texts the larger discourse is more important than individual utterances uh, said says that, that is not so i believe that every individual instance is every individual author is an instance of uh, of of the use of that kind of discourse to create a specific point of power a specific you know sort of node of power if if you will so wish 
so in that sense said says that every individual voice is important because it is a representative voice in that sense right so uh, for cromer logic is something that um, uh the existence of which the orient is disposed altogether to ignore it is a very similar thing on page number 37 i'll just read out somewhere in the middle of this quotation which starts with to be more explicit if the british nation as a whole persistently bears this principle in mind uh, and insist sternly on its application though we can never create a patriotism akin to that based on affinity of race or community of language we may perhaps foster some sort of a cosmopolitan allegiance grounded on respect always accorded to superior talents talents and unselfish conduct and on the gratitude derived both from favors conferred and from those to come right and so cromer uh, he says that um, these people um think uh, themselves think is best in their own interest although this is a point which deserves serious consideration and so on and so forth he says that these people don't know where their actual advantages lie but if we persist on doing what is right for them they will at some point in time be grateful for us the cosmopolitan allegiance right the word cosmopolitan is a word which is usually associated with the west and he is saying that respect always accorded to superior talents and unselfish conduct so he is saying we are going to loot them but they are going to some time also realize that we have what what he says astria redu astria redux is a greek myth um she left the earth astria is a daughter of zeus she left the earth um at the end of the golden age and her return um makes the return of justice and establishes a new world so he is basically he is using greek mythology western mythology to say that some at some day they will realize that by us coming we brought justice to them just like astria brought justice back to earth and he gives other examples also so in that sense said says that what happens is cromer says that the real future of egypt lies not in the direction of a narrow nationalism which will which only embraced by native egyptians but rather in that of an enlarged cosmopolitanism this is at the end of page number 37 and see again that word cosmopolitanism and cosmopolitanism is something that only the west can bring to egypt right so in that sense he goes on further ahead on page number 38 he says that um already when belfour is talking about in the early 20th century the uh, modern orientalism which according to said started in the late 18th century mid to late 18th century it's been around for 100 150 years and so um, you know uh, that uh, western orientalism is knowledge about and knowledge of orientals their race character culture history tradition society possibilities and cromer believed he had put it to use in governing egypt so all of this knowledge which is carried um which is sort of assorted about the egyptians it is used to rule the egyptians and then there are uh, references to sir alfred lyell and he says exactly the same thing again in different words he says the european is a close reasoner natural logician and um, you know he his even if he is not studied logic he is by nature skeptical skepticism is associated with science requires proof 
and his intelligence works like a piece of mechanism again industrial revolution mechanism is good uh, and the egyptian is um 